an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, thank you, everyone, for having me. I'm very excited to be at Franciscan University of Steubenville. This is my first time to Steuby. And, uh, and I know it well enough that I know that that's what it's called, is Steuby. So there's about, it looks like there's about 225 people here, something like that. Is that right? Give yourselves a hand, you guys, for, uh, seriously, this is a great turnout. I really appreciate it, everybody. As they mentioned in my introduction, um, we were foster parents for about three years. Um, we have two children. We have an adopted child and a birth child, and then we did foster care for a number of years. And my daughter's actually good friends with some people who go to Steubenville, and she um, has always kind of enjoyed the fact that she ended up with more siblings than even her friend who has nine, who's one of nine. She's, you know, so I, I actually had ten siblings all total, but not all at the same time, you know. <laughs> so it's a little odd way of doing, having, doing parenthood. We have four children, just not always the same four children. <laughs> oh well. And you can, you know, when you do foster care, you can tell them we don't do teenagers. Okay, like that's a real advantage, you know what I'm saying? We just do six to twelve, that's all. We stop at twelve, that's the end. So anyway, <clears throat> I'm here tonight to talk with you about the subject of uh, same-sex marriage, why not, is the, the advertised title. And before I begin that, those remarks, I, I, I want to just ask you for a little bit of, of help. And particularly, I would like to ask all of you to pray for the health and well-being of the institution of marriage. Um, the marriage is under attack around the world, literally around the world. Uh, last summer when there was a debate over same-sex marriage in Argentina, um, we got called. Um, and by the time we were called in, it was like way too late. The movement had already taken place. And so there are movements going on today um, in other countries. And I would really like to ask all of you to pray for the health of marriage all, the, all around the world. Um, on February the 9th, there will be uh, hearings in Rhode Island on the subject of redefining marriage in Rhode Island. And uh, I may be back on the East Coast to, to, uh, to, to speak to the state legislature in Rhode Island. So I'd really like to ask for everyone in this room to pray and sacrifice for the health of marriage in our country and around the world. And honestly, I can tell you that a, um, a friend of mine who is involved with the World Congress of Families, uh, which is a big effort worldwide to try to protect the natural family, um, the people in Poland and people in the European Union look to the United States to say, please help us, please save us, because the things are you know, rather, in rather a difficult way in the European Union in many ways. And so uh, what happens in America really matters a lot, and so your prayers and sacrifices will really add up to be something quite substantial and important for the institution of marriage worldwide. So I'd ask that, that that's the first thing that I want to ask you to do. The second thing that I'd like to invite you to do is that the Ruth Institute, our organization, um, is, a, is, a, is a group that tries to promote lifelong married love to college students and other young adults. Uh, and our feeling is that um, the baby boomer generation has had its bite at the apple, and um, marriage in the future is going to be whatever you all make of it. Marriage is in your hands. The future of marriage is in your hands. And so we want to uh, provide as many resources as we can to assist your generation 
in moving the ball forward for natural marriage and sexual integrity and all the things that, um, that the Love Revealed Club is, is already working on on your campus. So we're very excited to be collaborating with them. One of the projects that we have is a weekly newsletter uh, that I'd like to invite all of you to sign up for. It's an electronic newsletter, and uh, Molly will pass around these sign-up sheets. There are people here who already get this newsletter. Every week we have an article and commentary on issues ranging to covering the whole range of issues from the life issues to uh, marriage, um, uh, sexual integrity issues, and same-sex marriage, of course, the issue we're going to talk about tonight. But divorce, cohabitation, all of that stuff. We deal with all of that stuff. Uh, because there are so many threats to marriage and so many problems that we're dealing with in the whole area of marriage. So uh, we're, you're, everybody is welcome to sign up for that. And what I would tell you is that if you read that newsletter regularly every week, you will be very well informed about everything that's going on. You'll have a lot of good arguments and good evidence that you can use to defend marriage and life um, and all the other issues that are linked together. Now, the reason I think these issues are linked, just to just briefly say, um, how, how I envision the whole thing, is that marriage is an integrating social institution. And what marriage does is that marriage in every known society is something that is the preferred place for sexual activity and childbearing, right? You're supposed to have sex inside marriage. You're supposed to not have sex outside marriage. You know, that's a, a kind of a bright line that most cultures have in one way or the other, that sex is a preferred place to have mar to, uh, sorry, marriage <laughs> is a preferred place to have sex. Did I say that right? Whoa, I'm not used to starting a talk at 9 p.m., okay? This is a little <laughs> odd, but anyway. <clears throat> um, and, and also that marriage is the preferred context for childbearing, right? And that childbearing and sex are somehow related, right? I mean, the, uh, <laughs> Right, I was talking to nursing students this afternoon. You do all get that sex and childbearing have something to do with one another. You know, um, it used to be, at the beginning of the sexual revolution, see the sexual revolution, what did the sexual revolution do? It took all of that apart. It basically said we can take those three things and put them all in different categories. That you can have your, your love for your sex partner over here, you can have babies over there, sexual activity over there, and marriage doesn't even need to be in the picture, see? And at the beginning of the sexual revolution, when the, when the birth control pill first came out, everybody thought, oh, that, wow, this is going to be really fun. We're going to be able to have sex without having babies. And this is going to be great fun, okay? So now, as the things have unfolded and moved along, we're having babies without having sex, which I'm pretty sure is not as much fun, okay? <laughs> so, so if you think about it, in, out in California, we have Octomom. Okay, think about Octomom. Octomom has 14 children and up until now has never had a known act of coitus with a man. This is quite astonishing, right? All of those children were artificially conceived. So there's, there's something a little odd about the whole thing. And one of the things that's happened is that we're in retreat from human relationship. That by separating sex, procreation, and marriage, um, we're, we're retreating from one another. And that's why your club, being called Love Revealed, as a chastity club, is actually, that's a very powerful name, right? And there are a lot of cool clubs going on around the country with really, you know, informative names like that, uh, that, that that deal with this point. So anyway, it may sound like I'm off the topic, but I'm really not off the topic, because to me, the same-sex marriage issue is just the next step down the road. It's like we've got a train that's been going down the road, and same-sex marriage is just one more stop down that same 
track, right? And, that, and same-sex marriage isn't even the end of the track. I'll say something later about what I, where I think the end of the track is. But, but it's re it really is all just moving along this same line of thought, which is that you can deconstruct the whole thing and separate the whole thing and disintegrate the whole thing, okay? And so that's why the Ruth Institute works on the whole range of issues. If it were up to me, I wouldn't talk about same-sex marriages because it's frankly kind of a bummer of a topic to deal with. Um, everyone yells at you, you know, if you say anything about it. Um, but um, and I, you know, I'd be happy to just be talking about divorce and cohabitation and all those things where everybody agrees. Oh yes, that's you know, we should really do something about the divorce rate, which is really what they say when they don't really mean to do anything, right? Um, <laughs> You know, sorry, but that's what, that, it's sort of a dodge, you know. I'm getting cynical. You know, I've been around this thing too long. You know, I just don't take people seriously when they talk like that. Anyhow, anyhow, so um, I, I, leading, lead, I'm sorry, it's taking a while to lead up to my topic. But one of the other projects that we're working on is a project to engage young adults in the institution of marriage, in the, in the support and defense of marriage, quite apart from the issue of same-sex marriage. So we're going to be doing, we have already been doing, interviews uh, with young adults on the subject of lifelong married love. What do you think take, it takes to keep marriage alive for a lifetime, to keep love alive for a lifetime? We just finished the Real Love video challenge where we asked um, student filmmakers to make their own films, and those are up on the Ruth Institute website. We've got 40 or 50 videos up there that were made by people your age, and that the entries have just now closed. So. Sorry, too late, <laughs> I came too late. But you can be part of this other project and we'll be do doing interviews after this lecture tonight. You can get involved in that way in spe speaking up for marriage, sticking up for marriage. So th for the core of my talk tonight on same-sex marriage, what you all came for, there are two main topics that I wanna cover in my talk tonight on why not same-sex marriage. The first issue that I wanna deal with, it's a very important issue is, what is marriage in the first place? And I'm gonna deal with that question this way. What is the essential public purpose of marriage? That's the first thing I'm gonna to talk to you about. What is the essential public purpose of marriage? So I'm not a philosopher, I can't go into essences and stuff like that, I don't know how that's done. But I can talk about social purposes and stuff like that. So I'll, uh, if you ha I know a lot of you are, are aware of some of those kinds of arguments. This is the, it's the same argument, just uh, it's like you've got a, a crystal ball here and you just rotate it and you're looking at it from the other side, right? We're just looking at the same reality but from different perspectives. So the first thing I'll talk about is what is the essential public purpose of marriage? The second thing I wanna talk with you about is what's the harm in redefining marriage? What's wrong with same-sex marriage? How does somebody else's marriage affect you? Have any of you ever heard this question? Anybody ever, you ever heard this is a rhetorical question, right? What, you know, and, and so the, the idea here is that if it doesn't really do any harm, why not just let them have it? You know, just let them have what they're asking for. You know, they're nice guys, you know, they're nice people. That's your, it's your niece or your coworker or, you know, somebody you care about. So why not just let them have it? Because there's really no harm to it. So the bulk of the talk will be spent on the subject of what is the harm? Okay, what's the problem with redefining marriage? So let's start with the beginning. What is the essential public purpose of marriage? Well, I say the essential public purpose of marriage is to attach mothers and fathers to their children and to one another. The essential public purpose of marriage is to attach mothers and fathers to their children and to one another. 
Now, why do I say this is an essential public purpose? Well, I mean it in, in two ways first. It, it's essential in the sense that this job of attaching moms and dads to their kids is really quite an important job because somebody has to take care of the kids, right? Somebody has to take care of the kids. Somehow, you have to get children from helpless infancy to adulthood. That, that's gotta get done somehow. So that, in that sense, it's essential. But it's also essential in another way. And that is, if you didn't have this purpose, you wouldn't need marriage at all. If you didn't have to solve the problem of getting helpless infants into adulthood, you wouldn't need the institution of marriage. Now let me illustrate what I mean. Suppose we were the kind of creatures that uh, gave birth to our young that were born uh, pretty much mature and ready to go. Right? They didn't have long periods of dependency, okay? like a snake or something. Right? The snakes hatch, the little baby snakes slither away, that's the end of it. Mommy snake, daddy snake, you know, they're just, they're not around, right? It's not, there's not much call for pair bonding in the reptile kingdom as far as I know. Maybe some of the biology people are going to straighten me out if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's much pair bonding going on with the reptiles, right? Because the young are born alive. They, they don't need a mom and dad around, all right? So if we were that kind of creature, you wouldn't be thinking about marriage, particularly. Or if we were the type of creature that reproduced through some kind of asexual form of reproduction, right? Like we're a little single-celled creature and we just divide or something like that. I, you know, there, I, I, again, you biology guys can straighten me out here, but not all beings reproduce through sexual reproduction, right? It's just some of the higher vertebrates and stuff do that, right? Right. Okay, so if you were not doing that, if you didn't have male and female, if that wasn't the way you reproduced, no one would have ever thought of marriage. Right? It's because you have a mother and father for reproduction and you have a long period of dependency that you need a social institution like marriage. So without that, you wouldn't need marriage. So that's the sense in which it's an essential public purpose. No one, it never would have entered anybody's mind to come up with lifelong sexual fidelity as a plan. You know, I mean, it just, it just wouldn't have entered the mind, right? So, um, that's the sense in which it's an essential public purpose. Now, it's public in the following sense. It's important to think about the difference between a public purpose of marriage and a private purpose of marriage because a lot of the debate confuses those two things, as a matter of fact, if you think about it. If I ask you, why are you getting married, there could be uh, you know, 100 reasons why somebody could say, I'm going to get married. You might get married because you really love the other person, you want to spend your life with them, and you've been through a six-month pre-cana class, and you've got it all down. Right? That could be. On the other hand, you could be, you just want to have the dress, you want to have the big party, you want to irritate your previous boyfriend, you're trying to get away from your parents, you know, you want to, you want to share expenses. You could have a whole lot of private reasons for wanting to get married, your personal reasons. Right? There's all kinds of private personal reasons, private personal goods you could be pursuing by getting married, right? And all of you could name even more of why you might be getting married, right? Those reasons, none of those private reasons add up to a single public reason to why you'd have marriage in the first place. You don't need marriage as a public social institution in order for you to irritate your previous boyfriend. You see what I mean? That does not count as a public purpose. So when you hear people talking about marriage, a lot of times you'll hear them saying things, we want to show that we love each other. To which you say, that's nice, but why is that the public's business? Why is the government involved in that? We want social approval for our relationships. Same question. 
that's nice. I have a lot of friends. I love my sister. I love my, my best friend. I don't need marriage to do anything about that. It's none of the public's business. Right? The public has no particular interest in any of those kinds of relationships. If I break up with my best friend, if I quarrel with my mother, that's none of the public's business, right? It's sad, but it's none of the public's business. But those things do matter if you're looking at the relationship that's procreative in kind, right? Because then instability in the, in the relationship matters. It has a public consequence, namely what's happening to that public purpose of marriage, bringing the children, attaching the children to their mothers and fathers and to, one and to, to each other, okay? So <clears throat> that's the sense in which the difference between the public and private purposes of marriage is really quite important. Now, let's back, take another step back and look again at the public purpose of marriage as to, from the child's point of view. I want to look at it from the child's point of view. And I would put it to you in this way. What is justice for the child? What is justice for the child? I would say to you that children are entitled to a relationship with their parents. Children are ordinarily entitled to a relationship with both of their parents. This is justice for the child. And every child has a legitimate interest in the stability of their parents' union. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Because the stability of the parents' union is the way that a child has a relationship with both of them. So if mom and dad are quarreling all the time, or if mom and dad don't live together, then the child the child's ability to be in relationship with both of them is hindered and sometimes completely thwarted, right? As probably some of you know well from your own personal experience and observation. You've seen families where the parents aren't living together and the child's relationship with one parent or the other is seriously impaired as a result of that. So children have an interest, a legitimate interest, in the stability of their parents' union, but as every sensible person knows, children cannot defend their own interests. A child cannot march into court and say, see here, my rights have been violated, someone get over here and do something about it. Right? Which is the way grown-ups handle their interests, right? I mean, you know, if somebody violates your contract, you, you take them to court, right? Well, that's not going to work with kids. By the time kids are old enough to go march into court, it's too late. They only get one year to be one year old. Right, that window of opportunity for them to be a child in a household at that age is gone. And so to really protect the child's interests, what we need to do is to protect their interests proactively before harm is done. We have to have a proactive institutional framework that protects their interests in advance of harm being done. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is adult societies proactive way of protecting the legitimate interests of children, interests which children cannot protect on their own. Now, a lot of my economics friends and libertarian friends want to reduce the family to a series of contracts, which means they want to reduce family law to a special case of contracts and property law. And I'll just tell you right now, just as an aside, family law has never been that. Marriage has never been that, and certainly relations between children and parents have never been contractual relationships. And the attempt to do that will be extremely destructive, but that is where the deconstruction of marriage is going, to redefining all family relationships in terms of contracts. That's, as I'll show you later, later on, I'll probably get a chance to give you some examples of that. 
But um, so marriage is a social institution that adult society creates to proactively protect the interests of children, legitimate interests of children, which they cannot protect on their own. And that is a legitimate public purpose that, you that we can't do as individuals and that we need a social structure, a social institution wrapped around us in order to assist everybody in doing that. That is the essential public purpose of marriage. The essential public purpose of marriage is to attach mothers and fathers to their children and to one another. Now, I think it's apparent if you view that as the central purpose of marriage, you will see that same-sex couples and opposite-sex couples are situated differently with respect to that purpose, right? They're, they're, whatever you might think of gay parenting, whatever you might think of, of gays adopting, whatever you might think of gays using artificial reproductive technology or anything like that, you have to admit they're situated differently than an opposite sex married couple with respect to that purpose. And so, and so, the courts which have redefined marriage to be the union of any two persons instead of the union of a man and a woman, the courts that have done that have had to redefine the purpose of marriage. Okay, every time you see a court saying, uh, oh, we, oh, we must by all means have same-sex marriage, same -sex, opposite sex marriage is discriminatory, whenever they talk like that, what they have to do is to redefine the purpose of marriage so that the purpose I just mentioned gets wiped out, gets thrown to the bottom of the heap and basically papered over. So what I wanna do is to read to you now the decision of the judge in California who overturned Proposition 8, Judge Von Walker. He, on his own authority, threw out the votes of seven million voters in California. Did you, did you realize that the, one of the most liberal states in the union in a referendum voted in favor of natural marriage? Did you guys ever have five minutes to celebrate that fact? We didn't, you know, I mean, we, we fought and fought and fought and we won and you know, we were pretty sure we were gonna win. We didn't get five minutes to really raise the roof and be excited and everything because we were in court immediately. So what I'd like to do, just take a moment and just remind you, we won Prop 8, okay? Could we have a round of applause for the voters of California? Okay. Uh, that was a marvelous experience too, the Prop 8 experience, because it was a big interfaith effort. It would not have happened unless everybody was working together. It was really a, well, just a, it was what the civil rights movement should have been. It was what ecumenical outreach should have been. It was really marvelous. But anyway, Judge Walker overturned all that because we're all a bunch of hateful bigots now, we know. Um, and so um, here's the definition of marriage that he came up with in order to do this. And I want to read this to you. Judge, Judge Walker says, Marriage is the state recognition and approval of a couple's choice to live with each other, to remain committed to one another, to form a household based on their own feelings about one another, and to join in an economic partnership and support one another and any dependents. Nothing about children, nothing about sex. Do you notice this doesn't have to be a sexual relationship? Under this definition, you guys, you and your roommates could count as married, okay? The members of um, Love Revealed could count as married because they're sharing economic resources and maybe they dorm together or something, okay? Okay, I mean, 
this definition, there's nothing here in this definition is what I want you to see. There's nothing there. This is not what we would normally think of as marriage. But that's what he had to do in order to say that same-sex, because by this definition of marriage, of course, same-sex and opposite-sex couples are the same. And so are two roommates, and so are three people, and you know, all kinds of people could fit this definition. See? So that, that's the problem with this move of, rede of redefining marriage to include same-sex couples, is that you have to wipe away the central purpose of marriage. So that gets us to the point where we can, uh, where we can see, we can begin to see that maybe there is something wrong with this. That maybe redefining marriage isn't as innocent or such a small deal as we have been led to believe. So let's now talk about what are the harms that might come from redefining marriage to be the union of any two persons instead of the union of a man and a woman. I would put it to you in this way. I would say that same-sex marriage undermines some key principles of law and some key understandings of social practice. And that by undermining those key principles in law, we're going to have some negative consequences. Okay, so that's what I'd like to do is to spell out four principles that I believe are key principles as we currently understand marriage and show how same-sex marriage, how redefining marriage will undermine those principles. The first principle I've already alluded to but I think it's an established principle in our law and social practice, and that is that children are ordinarily entitled to a relationship with their mothers and their fathers. It's a key principle in law that children are ordinarily entitled to a relationship with their mothers and fathers. And something extraordinary has to happen for that to not, be, for that to not hold true. That adoption is an unusual situation. At one time it was thought that out of wedlock childbearing should be thought of as an unusual situation and should be discouraged. Of course, we've lost that a lot. And so a lot of children of single parents don't have much in the way of a relationship with their fathers. Okay? Um, and so already some steps have been taken to undermine that key principle. But same-sex marriage will, as it were, finish the job on this principle. Because same-sex marriage says that as a matter of principle, it's not particularly, children are not particularly entitled at all to a relationship with their biological parents. That you can sever that tie with one parent or maybe even both with no discernible harm for no reason other than the adults want to do it. And it's marriage that will be the vehicle that does that. Marriage will become the kind of thing that separates children from their parents rather than being the kind of thing that attaches children to their parents. Now let me explain how that works. Right now, there's a principle in law that is called the presumption of paternity. And the presumption of paternity works like this. When a woman um, gives birth to a child, her husband is presumed to be the father of any children that she has during the life of, her, during the life of their marriage. Okay, so that, the, the, who's the mother, who's the father? This is the question. Well, when a baby is born, it's usually pretty obvious who the mother is. Right, there's usually a mother somewhere <laughs> close by, right? Usually that's pretty obvious. And so, the, although there's some exceptions, which I'm gonna tell you about in a minute. Um, the, so it's pretty obvious who the mother is, and there's a presumption that the woman who gives birth to the baby is the mother of the child, right? Seems sensible to me. Um, but who's the father? The social problem is to figure out who the father is and attach him to the child. That's a, the, the father's bond is always a little bit more tenuous, so that's the social 
job that has to get done here. So what marriage, the way marriage works, right? The way marriage works is that the husband is presumed to be the father of any children that she gives birth to. Now, if you take that legal presumption and you couple it with an understanding that sex belongs inside marriage, what you've got is a system that tracks biology pretty closely, right? In, you know, right? I mean, there's going to be adultery and there are going to be some cases where you know, the, the husband isn't really the father and so on. But in 95% of the cases, this system is tracking biology. If you have a same-sex partnership, <clears throat> what would be the corresponding principle? Well, the principle that people are trying to put into place is one that replaces presumption of paternity with presumption of parentage. Presumption of parentage. Now, what that means is that if a woman gives birth to a baby, her partner, her same-sex partner, is analogously treated as the father, and she is presumed legally to be the other parent of that child. Now, of course, in 100% of the cases, this is false. Right? She is not the other parent of the child. There is another parent of the child somewhere. He has been safely escorted off the stage and kept off the stage by the legal system. All right? It's typically done by anonymous sperm, sperm donation, but it can be done by a friend, you know, a friend who wants to uh, you know, help out his, his friends and donate a sperm and so on and so forth. But the point is, if you, use the, if you say that the presumption of parentage is the same thing as the presumption of paternity, you are deliberately, in advance, excluding one biological parent from that child's life. And it is the law and the law of marriage which is doing that thing. So instead of marriage being the kind of thing that routinely and, and consistently attaches children to both of their biological parents, marriage becomes the kind of thing that separates children, some children, from one of their parents. So this, I would submit to you, is a significant change this is not a small thing. This is something that needs to be discussed and debated. And I think in the end, a rational discussion of this would show it to be undesirable, an undesirable change. So it's not simply that we don't like gay people or that we're prejudiced or that we're bigoted or that we're bringing up some kind of theological point here. Okay, I haven't said a word about theology. I haven't quoted the Bible once. I haven't quoted, I haven't quoted John Paul II once, even though I could, but I'm not. Okay, these arguments, this insight is available to anyone. That this is a substantial difference that deserves to be discussed and not simply hooted down by charges of your being mean and bigoted. And that is what is happening in our very, very toxic discussion around the issue of same-sex marriage. That when you bring up these points, instead of an argument, what you get is yelling. And that's got to stop. That's got to stop. So that's the first harm, one of the first key principles, I think, that will be undermined by redefining marriage. The second one is that um, the second principle that I would say is more of a, a principle of, of uh, social policy or social practice and understanding is that mothers and fathers are not interchangeable. Mothers and fathers are not interchangeable. Most people, I think, believe that to be the case based on their experiences with their parents and their mothers and fathers, um, that moms and dads are different. Um, one of the ways that we can kind of see that is if you look at a lot of social science evidence, you see that the gender of parents matters when uh, father absence is having a different impact on children than mother absence. 
that father absence has a different impact on boys than on girls. Okay, so gender must matter. Gender must matter. There are a lot of reasons to think that gender matters. But you can see that what's happening here is to say that mothers and fathers are interchangeable. Oh, the kids will be fine as long as they have two parents who love them. It doesn't matter whether they have a mom and a dad. All that data, Dr. Morse, doesn't really mean that. It really just means they need two parents. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether they're biologically related, whether they're male, whether they're female. You're just confusing all these things. Well, no, the reason it looks like we're confusing things is because we have something that's integrated, something that integrates biology and sex differences in marriage. Okay, so th there are arguments out there if you want to talk about in the questions and answers, we can talk about some of the studies that are out there and we can kind of go through that a little bit. But the basic point here is that mothers, and the claim that mothers and fathers make unique contributions to the well-being of children, that claim is now not only contested, it's in danger of being considered bigotry to even say so. So for example, in uh, the Iowa Supreme Court decision, that legalize same-sex marriage in Iowa. Did you guys know that they have same-sex marriage in Iowa? How many of you knew that? Okay. Yeah, you need to get out more, you guys. <laughs> they have same-sex marriage in Iowa, and that was done by judges. And uh, there was a footnote in the opinion that said, and this is close to a direct quote, the judge said, the idea that children need their mothers and fathers has been shown to be based on nothing but myth. It's a myth that children need their mothers and fathers. Okay, and Judge Walker said words to that effect in California as well. So now, if you took that statement and applied it as a general principle throughout society, if you just took that principle and said kids don't really need a mother and a father, and you applied that generally throughout society, you would see at once that it's false. Right, as a, as a general statement, it is certainly false. You would not go to the poor neighborhoods of Cleveland and say, it's a myth that kids need their mothers and their fathers. You know, as, as if there was something other than fathers that was gonna solve the problems of some of the urban neighborhoods that we have, you know? So this, but, but the judges are making these kinds of statements because they think they must in order to defend same-sex marriage. So that's why I think that legalizing same-sex marriage will have the impact of undermining the claim that kids need a mom and a dad and that moms and dads are not interchangeable. And one of the key problems to that, one of the uh, very visible problems you will see flowing from that is that it is fathers who will be marginalized from the family. Fathers will be further marginalized from the family. Men will be kicked out of the family even more than they already are. Now, you know, when you have a 40% out of wedlock childbearing rate, you've already gone pretty far in kicking men out of the family, okay? So there's already a lot of energy on that point of, of marginalizing men from the family. But the fact is, if you treat mothers and fathers as interchangeable, it's fathers who are, whose connection is the more tenuous, and it is fathers who, uh, upon who the greater burden is going to bear. The presumption is not gonna be, well, we need you around, buddy. No, th there's no presumption. Nobody is going to look at two women or at two men raising a baby together, look at Elton John and his boyfriend and say, oh, this, you see, it's just as I always knew, no one needs a mother. But people do look at two women raising a child and say, you see, it's just as I've always suspected, who needs a father? In the UK, prior to same-sex marriage being, they have same-sex marriage in, Cal in the UK. Did you guys know that? Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> They used to have a, a rule that in order to use artificial reproductive technology through their um, 
their public health service over there, that you had to, if you were not married, you had to show that the child would have his, his, uh, his or her need for a father figure would be somehow met. In other words, you had to sign a little affidavit saying, you know, yeah, there's a, you know, my brother will be a father figure or I have an uncle or something like that. There was, it was a very perfunctory requirement uh, that, that indicated that if an unmarried woman was going to use the service, that she needed to be able to say that there'd be a man in the child's life somehow. Well, after same-sex marriage happened, they removed that requirement. They removed that requirement because they didn't want to hurt people's feelings. Okay, I'm not even kidding, I'm not making that up. And then finally, the other thing that you should be aware of is the way that the birth certificates are getting changed in places around the world. In Canada, um, I used to have a birth certificate uh, from British Columbia. The birth certificate on British Columbia, um, at the top of the birth certificate, it has information for the child's name and birth weight and all that kind of stuff. Then there's a space for the mother, the mother's information can be put in. And then there's a space for the father or co-parent a checkoff box, okay? So fatherhood is reduced to a checkoff box, okay? So that is why I believe that it is fathers who will be marginalized by saying that mothers and fathers are completely interchangeable. That's where this thing is headed. Now, of course, there's another way you can uh, redo the birth certificate, which I'll tell you about under item three here, which is um, the, the third key principle that will be undermined by same-sex marriage is that biology is the primary way that we now define parenthood. We define parenthood primarily through biology. When you say the word mother and father, the entire human race knows what you're talking about. Right? Children know what you're talking about. You can look at animals and go, that's the mommy horse and that's the daddy horse. Right? The entire human race knows perfectly well what you mean when you say mother and father. You mean the biological mated pair that brought this child into being. And that's what it means to be a mother and a father, biology. Now, uh, at this point, somebody will always stand up and shout at me, you're forgetting about adoption. Well, now, I don't know how I could forget about adoption, seeing as that I'm an adoptive parent and that I'm a foster parent. But the point is, adoption does not, in fact, undermine this basic principle. Biology is the basic way that we assign parenthood. Adoption exists to deal with exceptional situations, and adoption is a child-centered exception. Adoption exists to give children the parents they need. It does not exist to give adults the children they want. That's the difference. So adoption, as currently understood, is, an exceptional, is a way of dealing with exceptional situations. But adoption is also structured in such a way as to not undermine the biological principle. In fact, when you go to adopt a child, the biological mother and father have to surrender their parental rights. You don't have three parents wandering around, right? You have, uh, the, the biological parents have legally surrendered their rights, and those same rights, exact same rights, are reassigned to the, to the adoptive parents. So you've replaced the biological parents with another set of parents that are in, in all, in, as close as possible, the same thing. There's no way in which you're undermining the biological principle by having a system that deals with exceptions. In fact, that's one of the strengths of our common law system is we come up with ways of dealing with exceptions. We realize exceptional situations will happen, right? But the idea that biology is unimportant to parenthood is at the core of 
the redefinition of marriage. And if you, if you see the theme that I'm t following here, that since I believe marriage has something crucially to do with children, that redefining marriage is going to redefine parenthood. But nobody ever talks about how we're redefining parenthood, right? No, nobody ever talks about that. Nobody ever thinks about that. And so one of the consequences that will flow from uh, recognizing same-sex unions as the equivalent to marriage uh, is that children will end up not just with two parents, but with three or maybe four legal parents. Biology will not be the principle by which we assign parenthood. It will be biology plus something else. And maybe biology isn't even as important as the something else. So here's a scenario that one sometimes sees in the case law now. You'll have a lesbian couple that want to have a child together. They find a friend, a friendly friend, who will donate sperm to them. They make some kind of little agreement, okay, that's going to regulate the fact that he's not, you know, he, you know, maybe he'll be a favored uncle, but he's not the parent. They're the parent, okay? And so then the question is, are these, are these agreements enforceable at law? That's the question. He's the biological father. The woman who gave birth to the child is the biological mother. And then there's this lesbian partner who is wanting to be attached to it. So there are places and jurisdictions where there are three names going on to birth certificates. Okay, obviously not biology. Something other than biology is, ru is running that ship. Okay, you see that? So triple parenting will be unstoppable. There will be no principle to stop that kind of thing from happening. And if you think about it, uh, the idea that you need two, two parents or two people in a married couple is really based on bi the biological fact of, of reproduction, right? The, 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 you can create the one flesh union between the man and the woman. That's a complete marital unit, a complete reproductive unit. You don't need a third party in there. In fact, the third party's a problem. You know, usually <laughs> it's kind of a problem, right? <coughs> But there is no complete reproductive unit in a same-sex couple. A third party has to be introduced if they're going to have children. And so therefore, what seems natural to us now, meaning a married couple, will no longer seem natural, right? That, that the idea that you should have only two people in the couple, there's no reason to, there's, there isn't any reason to keep it at two. And some people are already starting to talk about this, and case law is already developing around it. And there was a puff piece in the Boston, po Boston Boston Globe not too long ago that talked about a child with four parents because it was a lesbian couple and a gay couple and you know they had it all worked out and it was all so cool and so on and so forth. And it was very interesting in the story, the, uh, the, the Boston Globe story, they didn't show photographs of any of these people but they did have like an illustration that was, um, um, it showed the child kind of in the middle of these four people. It was very interesting that the, the illustration that they made of the child, you could not identify the gender of this child. Right, it was a unisex kind of looking child. You really couldn't tell what the gender of the child was. Okay, so what's happening to us here is we're free basically we're freaked out over gender. You know, if I could just but not put too fine a point on it here. Right, I mean that's really what's happening to us, and and so the throwing biology under the bus as the way of determining parenthood. Triple parenting will be one of the consequences to it, but the other consequence will be uh, will, will flow from the other way you can handle the birth certificate. I want to talk to you about another way you could do the birth certificate because this is something that came up that was a little kerfluffle, um, not over birth certificates, but over um, passports. Passports. So some State Department functionary came up with a great idea that children's passports should not have a place for a mother and a father on them. 
should have a place for parent A and parent B on them. Okay, did you hear about this? This, kid, this came up a little while ago. And it, 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 it you know, it's like um, uh, one of these shooting stars that came whoosh, shone a lot of bright light and then all of a sudden it fizzled out and disappeared off the horizon because everybody threw up their hands and got so upset about it. You know, taking, taking mother and father off the passport? What are you talking about? Parent A, parent B, parent one, parent two. What are you talking about here? But notice, saying parent A and parent B is one of the ways to handle the birth certificate too, isn't it? Okay, instead of mother and father, parent A, parent B. Now, what happens when you say parent A, parent B? That means that the woman who gave birth to the child has no particular special standing in relation to that child compared with the woman in the couple who did not give birth to the child. You would think that giving birth to the child would mean that there is an unrebuttable presumption that you are the mother of the child, right? Well, that is turning out not to be exactly quite true because the other woman in the couple, her claim to be the mother of the child is just as great as yours because the law wants to treat them equally. And what happens, I have seen quite a few, I've read quite a few of these uh, lesbian custody cases because there are quite a few of these disputes that come up. And it isn't uncommon to have a, you know, a functioning couple decide to have a child and then after they had the child for a while, now the relationship blows up and then they're arguing about who gets the child and what the custody disputes look like and so on and so forth. So even without changing the marriage law, we're already confronting this stuff and trying to deal with it. So what's happening is that the woman who gave birth to the child has no special standing with respect to that child over, over and above her partner. So it's almost as if they are both equally the mother of the child. Now I want you to just think about this you're all, most of you are young, most of you aren't mothers yet, but if I were to say this in an audience that had a lot of mothers in it, um, there'd be a big reaction, which I'll show you. Um, think about what it would mean to share the care of your child with another woman. Mothers, think about what it would mean to share the care of your child with another woman, even another woman whom you love, right? Is it easy to share the care of your child with your sister? or with your mother, or with the child's nanny. It is not. And I believe that what's happened in a lot of these cases is that this attachment, the maternal attachment, flares up and surprised both of them. Surprised both of these women. They had no idea how difficult it was going to be. And yet the way the law is being driven is being driven to a place where the law itself will be reluctant to say that the one who gave birth is in any way different from the other one, that they're both equally the parent of the child, say, to wipe out biology as the principal way that we assign parenthood. It's very interesting how this is happening, but it, in a sense, it's incoherent. They're trying to do a number of things together that cannot be done, or that can only be done if you deny the body, if you deny that the body matters. I had lunch with your professor, Pat Lee, today and talked with him about his book on dualism. And I've just, I'm really struck again and again in this debate how often people throw back to me, oh, that's just the body. Oh, that's just biology. We're above all of that. And in fact, we're not above all of that. It flares up in a whole variety of ways that people are not expecting. So that's the third point. Um, is that biology is a primary way we define parenthood. And there's one last one I want to mention. There's a lot I could mention, but I want, there's one last one I want to mention. One last principle that will be undermined by same-sex marriage. And that is that currently the state recognizes parentage 
as an accepted biological fact. It's related to the others we've talked about. The state recognizes parentage, but the state doesn't assign parentage. The state doesn't control parentage. But as we move towards same-sex marriage, the state will be deciding who counts as a parent. The state is deciding who counts as a parent. There will be no natural parents because that privileges one, over, one of the parents over the other. There will only be legal parents, all created by the state. And what's happening in some of the disputed lesbian custody cases is that the courts are being asked to say, does this person count, does this partner count as a parent? And what the courts are doing, since they don't have biology to go on, and they're not quite ready to embrace the civil union's uh, position, what they'll say is stuff like, well, uh, they'll create three and four part tests to determine whether this is a de facto parent. And the short version is, did you wipe enough noses and change enough diapers to count as a parent? Well, so what does that mean? That means the government is asking these kinds of questions of families. The government is looking into people's family lives to decide who counts as a parent. The great virtue of the biological principle is that it, that principle exists independently of what the government says. And the government's just assigning an already existing reality or re recognizing an already existing reality rather than trying to create something out of whole cloth. And so one of the consequences of changing, changing marriage is that the power of the state will expand greatly, not just in this area but in other areas, because marriage as we understand it today, is a social reality that's an organic social reality. It, 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 it can sustain itself. It's a self-sustaining uh, thing that gives its own life and, and, can, and can keep itself going. Whereas same-sex marriage is entirely the creation of the state and will need the state to sustain it. It will need the state to tell other people that how they must behave with respect to same-sex couples. It needs the state to suppress dissent it needs the state to tell the Knights of Columbus that they must rent out their uh, banquet hall to a same-sex couple. If they rent it out to anybody, they have to rent it out to everybody. It will tell doctors, you must perform artificial reproductive technology on any couple who comes to you. Your religious convictions don't matter. They have all, these cases have already happened. They will tell Catholic charities that they must place children with, uh, adopted children with same-sex couples, that they may not make any distinguishing differences between same-sex and opposite-sex couples. They will tell the city of Washington, the city of Washington will tell the Archdiocese of, of Washington that you must pay benefits, spousal benefits, to all couples who come before you, whether you like it or not. And so the Archdiocese of Washington quit giving health benefits to spouses after same-sex marriage happened in the District of Columbia. The scope of the state will expand dramatically if we lose on same-sex marriage. And so what I'd like to do is to close by reading to you a kind of a short vignette that I put together of different things that could happen if we lose the battle for same-sex marriage. And so what I want, would like you to do is to imagine that you're up in, in Oakland, California. Uh, I first developed this for a talk that I gave in Oakland, California. And our bishop in Oakland was actually one of the great pioneers of the, of the Prop 8 movement. Bishop Salvatore Cordelione, sometimes called the father of Prop 8, but then his opponents call it, started calling Bishop Cordelione the godfather of Prop 8, and he decided he liked that better. So he's the godfather, <laughs> the godfather of Prop 8. 
Anyway, <coughs> I'd like you to just imagine that you're living in Oakland um, maybe 30 years from now and same-sex marriage has happened. So you and your grandson are going to a private prayer meeting at an apartment building in Oakland. You've been there often enough that you know a lot of the people who are sitting out in the steps or on the yard. There's old Mrs. Garcia. She's raising her grandchildren. Her daughter got caught up in drugs and men and went off the deep end. Her three grandchildren have different fathers. She hopes she can keep the kids, but you never know what the courts will decide. Then there's Miss Marisol. Her little girl lives with her some of the time, but when she broke up with her boyfriend, he went to, to court to claim that he was the de facto parent and that he should have shared custody. He was doing it to be mean to Marisol and because he wanted access to the little girl, if you know what I mean. Under the de facto parenting law, he counted as a parent because he spent enough time with the child and she used to call him daddy. So Marisol's daddy, daughter is with her old boyfriend part-time and she can't do anything to stop it. She didn't fight too hard because of her friend Lisa who used to live in the same complex. Lisa got her daughter taken away from her completely. Lisa went into hiding when her with her daughter when the court ordered her to turn the little girl over to her former girlfriend part-time. Somebody saw her, told on her, and she got found. Her little girl was taken away, and Lisa did jail time. So Marisol figured she was better off not fighting with her ex. Then there's Sherry and Rebecca. They're married to each other. They don't have sex with each other. They have sex with men, but nobody cares about that. They each have two kids with different guys, so there are four kids there with four different dads, which actually means no dads. They each raise their own kids under the same roof. They share health insurance, but that's about it. <clears throat> of course, there are a few guys around. Billy Joe Bob just hangs around his mom's apartment. He has a couple of kids by a couple different women. He doesn't feel any obligation to support any of them because he doesn't love any of those women or their brats. The courts have decided, after all, that love makes a family. And besides, Billy Joe Bob makes sure he doesn't earn very much money anyhow, so he doesn't pay anything anymore. His mom yells at him a lot, but he just laughs at her and does as he pleases. Then there's Luke. He got married to Sam when they were in the military. They thought it would be cool to get off base housing. They figured when their tour of duty was up, they'd get divorced and it would all be cool. But Sam got greedy and decided to sue Luke for his pension. Luke ended up broke and living in this broken down joint. Then there's little Ned. He has two mommies and two daddies. I should say, he started off with two mommies and two daddies. They quarreled amongst themselves. They went to court over his custody and worked out an elaborate plan for sharing parenting among the four of them. Most of them got tired of being on the cutting edge of social change and lost interest in Ned. He used to cry at school every day because he never knew who was coming to pick him up from school. Now Ned lives here with his natural mom, Janet. Sometimes one of the fathers or the other mother will come over and demand to see him and take him out on an outing. But his story ended pretty well because most of these people pretty much leave him alone now. Well, then there's Emily. Emily was bought and paid for by a guy who wanted a little girl. Of course, no one would marry this creeper. So he bought an egg, hired a surrogate, and used his own sperm to have this little girl. The law now says that artificial reproduction is a service and children are a commodity. Anyone who can pay gets to do anything they want. Anyhow, Emily's teacher figured out that something weird was going on and so she called Child Protective Services. So now Emily lives here with her teacher, Miss Lydia. But she'd lived with her dad, or I should say her manufacturer, for seven years before anybody stepped in to help her. Then there's Tom. You can't look at Tom without thinking of the old saying, nice guys finish last. 
He married some guy from Latin America who wanted a green card. They both agreed they'd get divorced as soon as the immigration deal was sealed. But while that was going on, his husband, Alejandro, acquired a live-in girlfriend. She got pregnant. They used to ask Tom to look after the baby while they partied. He didn't think much of it. He was trying to help out and be a nice guy. Well, when the time came for Tom and Alejandro to have their planned divorce, he found himself sucked into a child support suit. Unbeknownst to him, the law of marriage says that any child born to one parent during the life of their union is automatically the child of both. So when the girlfriend established his husband as the father of the child, Tom became the parent also. They stuck him for child support. They had it planned out from the beginning. He used to have a pretty nice car and live in a nice house. He still has a good job, but now he's stuck in this wreck of a place. Like I said, nice guys finish last. So you go up the steps to the prayer meeting at Miss Lila's apartment. Not too many people are coming these days. Today it's just Miss Lila, Mrs. Garcia, and old Mr. and Mrs. Villanueva. They used to be very active in Couples for Christ, a worldwide Filipino organization for married couples. But some same-sex couples wanted to join. The organization tried to accommodate them, Christian charity and all that, but the couples didn't feel at home because so many of the Couples for Christ programs talked about how men and women should relate to one another and how they could understand one another and how they should talk to each other. So the same-sex couples sued. The judge made Couples for Christ take out everything that had to do with sex differences, which meant there wasn't much point to the organization after that. Old Mr. and Mrs. Villanueva didn't quite know what to do with themselves after the organization closed. They had lived and breathed Couples for Christ. So Miss Lila brought out the old plaster statue from its hiding place and everybody brought out their prayer beads. They said their prayers for a while and drank coffee and you and your grandson left. As you got on the train, you told your grandson, back in the day, these BART trains used to go all over the place. There aren't too many left now. You remember hearing back at the turn of the 21st century how much the government was spending taking care of kids that didn't have their own parents. Back then, it cost the US government the equivalent of the GDP of New Zealand, about 112 billion per year. You don't want to think about what it costs today. As you're riding along, your grandson asks you, why is Miss Lila so sad? Well, her brother used to be the Bishop of Oakland. He's been in jail for the last 10 years. She's been praying for him all the time. Why did he go to jail? Well, you know that high school over on Fruitvale Avenue? Sure. Von Walker High School. That used to belong to the Catholic Church. Your grandson's eyes get wide. The church used to have schools? That school used to be called St. Elizabeth Ann Seton School. You couldn't bear to tell him that she had been a great pioneer of Catholic education in America. He wouldn't have understood such a thing. Well, the city tried to tell the bishop that the Catholic schools had to teach stuff that he didn't want to teach. Well, what kind of stuff? Well, like God knew what he was doing when he created men and women, and it's different but equal. That marriage is between a man and a woman. That kids need a mom and a dad. Stuff like that. A lot of people started coming to the Catholic schools because they wanted their kids to learn that stuff and no one else was teaching it. One day the police came to force them to get rid of some books and all the parents came to the school to guard their kids and their books. The bishop blocked the doorway to the school. The police took him away. Some of the parents tried to fight back, but when the police started taking kids away to put them in foster care, most of the parents gave up. The bishop's still in, in jail. He was one tough guy. He never backed down. Secretly, a lot of people admire him, but they're afraid to say anything. Well, you aren't afraid, are you, Grandpa? 
That's why we go over to Miss Lila's, isn't it? Oh, that's right. Grandpappy, you fought for the bishop, didn't you? Long, silent pause. The BART train rattles on. Grandpappy, you didn't do nothing to help the bishop, did you? No, I didn't do nothing. Here's our stop. Let's go watch the Raiders play ball. So you and your son get out of the BART at the end of the line at the crumbling Coliseum, the last remnant of what was once a great civilization. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what's headed towards us. There's a lot at stake in this battle. I want to reiterate to you, all of you, that the future of marriage is in your hands. We need you to pray. We need you to be active in the clubs that are already on campus and perhaps in new clubs too. And I hope that you'll participate in our real love interviews that we're going to be doing after this. But we need your generation to step up to the plate and tell the whole truth about what marriage is. Thank you very much. Initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.